Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the third installment in our Jason Bourne movie review series. Today we are reviewing The Bourne Ultimatum. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. The Bourne Ultimatum came out Friday, August 3rd, 2007. Kind of interesting that the movies are following this release pattern of coming one month after each other. The first movie came out June, 2nd July, now the 3rd August. But I gotta say, August is a weird choice. Yeah, it is a weird choice. At the very end of the summer season, um, you know, people are kind of going back to school and stuff. So not very many people, are, not as many people are going to be able to watch uh movies at this point Mm -hmm. so it's yeah it's a strange choice to go to release this in august and listeners if you haven't heard our previous two born movie reviews then definitely check those out before you listen to this one if you are just joining us for this make sure to head back into the archives two weeks ago we released the born identity and we also released guides to both of those films just to get you up to speed on the making of the background info these movies are based on books it gives you all the information you need to know about how these films came into being and their impact so make sure to listen to the guides also before you listen to the reviews themselves the guys are very short the born ultimatum is once again distributed by universal pictures and is directed by paul greengrass Now, the release date is interesting because the previous two films came out between June and July. This one came out August 3rd, so kind of just missing that summer blockbuster window, which seems a little odd. It still is on the tail end of it, I should say, but it is a little odd because this film is the highly anticipated conclusion to the trilogy. But nevertheless, it's also only 160 minutes long, pretty quick film. And this is the only of the Bourne trilogy, actually of the whole Bourne series, to be on the IMDb Top 250. Currently on IMDb, it holds a straight 8, which is an incredibly high score. But I should note, it's only 0.1 higher than the Bourne Identity. Now, this is the highest rated film on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a whopping 92% Uh, critics approval rating it is certified fresh audiences gave it a 91 percent approval rating it also has the highest meta score with an 85 very high audiences straight out of the theater with cinema score gave it an a which is the highest rating for the series it also has the biggest budget with 110 million dollars no surprise here it was number one at the box office opening weekend with a series high of $69.2 million. So for that opening weekend, number one, of course, was the Bourne movie. Number two was the Simpsons movie, which was in its second week. Underdog opened at number three. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry was number four. And Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, which had already been out for a month, came in at number five. This movie did open in 3,666 theaters. Its widest release was 3,701 theaters. 
It was in the theaters for 22 weeks. Now it has a series high domestic gross of $227.4 million. It also has a foreign gross of $216.6 million for a worldwide total. And this is a series high, a worldwide total of $444 million. This film was easily the most uh, financially profitable at the box office, even with a higher budget. This movie still did great for what it what it got. Now, this movie did actually make it to the Oscars. It was nominated for three Oscars and it won all three Oscars. No other uh, film in the Bourne series got an Oscar except for this one. So the Oscars that it won were Best Sound Editing, Best Sound Mixing, and Best Film Editing. I know a lot of people don't really know what the difference is between the two of them. Um, and most of the time, if one film wins one of the sound categories, it usually wins the other sound category. So here are some average scores across the board. It holds an average 8 on IMDb, an average 86% on Rotten Tomatoes for critics, 91% for audiences, an average 75 meta score. Um, in total, they spent $245 million on the budget. Um, in total, the movies across opening weekends grossed $148.9 million, which is surprisingly low actually um, but it did reap some huge rewards uh, for worldwide it grossed 948.9 million dollars this is very close to being a billion dollar franchise um, domestically it grossed uh, half a billion dollars and foreign it grossed 423 million dollars so as you can see this uh, trilogy is highly regarded it was did huge money wise just made a ton of money, and that's why it's no surprise two other films followed this and a TV series, which we will be talking about eventually. Alan, I don't know. Do you remember seeing this movie trailer back in 2007? I do not. I don't remember seeing this trailer back in 2007. I remember seeing it. I was didn't really know much about the series. I was 12, so wasn't really seeing anything pg-13 very much quite yet mm -hmm. this movie was very curious to me i knew it was the third installment i knew there was hype surrounding it so i really wanted to see it i may have gotten my hands on rental copies of the first two installments i don't remember and i honestly don't remember if i was in the theater to see this I want to say that I was in the theater, but I could just be making that up and I could have saw it shortly after at the end of the year on home video. But I do remember the trailer. I remember Bourne saying, I remember everything. And that kind of piqued my interest. Like, ooh, what? He remembers everything. I yeah. want to know what's going on. But okay, you've seen the trailer. You are old enough to go see this movie. You're in your 20s. Judging by your statements on the past two trailers, neither of those trailers uh, were going to get you into the theater. Mm. Is the third trailer going to change your mind? Are you going to go out, rent the first two movies? You're going to be there opening weekend or or maybe a month later or something. Right. Probably not. Oh, <laughs> just like the other two. And I say that because uh, the trailer, it kind of gives everything away. Seeing the movie now, <laughs> going back and watching it, it gives like everything away. Um, but besides that, you know, I, the first two trailers did not interest me at all. And so seeing this trailer as like a capstone of Jason Bourne, uh, then playing with the idea that Jason Bourne remembers everything. Um, 
eh, it just looks like it, you know a typical action movie again just like the last two trailers had now if i had seen the last two movies i would be pretty interested to see what this one holds as well um but if i haven't i would probably wouldn't yeah probably wouldn't you know take the time to go out and see it i'm with you i would wait for this on home video judging by the trailer nowadays how i view it and especially because i watched the movie first this time around and then went back to watch the trailer. Mm -hmm. I really hate watching trailers usually before a movie now because it's usually going to give you either the wrong idea of what the movie is about or it's just going to spoil the movie for you. And that's exactly what this trailer does. I think it looks like a cheap thriller. It gives away a lot of good moments in the movie and it's also deceptively edited. It paints a different picture from what the movie is. Um, there will be there are lines in this movie that and then they are overlaid about certain uh, scenes and characters that have nothing to do with that character. Um, I have no idea why they edited the trailer in this way, but this is this is not the movie. And yeah. there's also I don't know if you noticed, but there's um, a couple scenes in the trailer that aren't in the, the theatrical cut and aren't on the deleted scenes on the Blu-ray. Hmm, strange. I know that Supremacy had a couple of shots that were not in the movie either. It's trailer. Yeah, yeah, it's a bad trailer all around. It's like wild how deceptive this trailer is. Mm -hmm. um, like I said, the first trailer, I'm in. Uh, the second trailer, I'm not in. And the third trailer, I'm not in. So I would probably someday rent the trilogy from my local rental store. Yep. Give it a watch during the summer. Hey, those born movies, I haven't seen them. But uh, uh, no, it's disappointing. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you haven't seen The Born Ultimatum and you don't want the film spoiled for you, then go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and watch the film and then come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Six weeks after the events of The Born Supremacy, Jason Bourne, reprised by Matt Damon, decides he has to end this. He has to find out who started the whole operation in the first place and why he even joined it. He learns about British journalist Simon Ross, played by Patty Considine, publishing exposés on the United States shadow organization Treadstone and their once top operative Jason Bourne. But it appears Ross has dug too deep. He learns of the umbrella organization, Black Briar. He just so happens to be getting this information from the leaker, Neil Daniels, played by Colin Stinton. Also, Bourne is recovering new memories, and Daniels just so happens to be in those memories. Meanwhile, Ross receives a phone call from Bourne to meet him at Waterloo Station in London, England. Simultaneously, the head of Blackbriar, Noah Vosen, played by David Straitharn, has put a tail and tap on Ross. At the command of Vosen, Ross is assassinated by the asset Paz played by Edgar Ramirez, which causes Bourne to accidentally reveal his face. Now, Bourne is being hunted once again by the CIA. He kind of already was earlier in the beginning, but Pam Landy was like, hey, leave him alone. Let's try and bring him in. By looking at Ross's notes, he figures out his source is Daniels. Bourne tracks Daniels to Madrid, Spain, and there finds Nikki, reprised by Julia Stiles. But they're too late. Daniels has fled across the Mediterranean to Tangier, Africa. In Tangier, Bourne must contend with CIA asset Desh, played by Joey Ansa, while at the same time trying to save Daniels' life, and now Nikki's because she has decided to help Bourne, thereby incurring the wrath of Vosen. 
Dash tricks Born, causing Daniels to die, but Born is able to barely take out Dash and save Nikki. Knowing she's committed treason, Nikki must alter her looks and go on the run. In order to put this all to an end once and for all, Bourne looks through Daniel's charred bag to find an address for the CIA. He returns to New York. He's coming home. Pam Landy contacts Bourne in order to give him a secret code, which she passes off as his birthday, but in fact it's an address for where his induction into Treadstone began. By chance, he happens to see Vosen putting the files away in his office that would expose the CIA's illegal program. We will talk about that. Bourne tricks Vosen out of his office, nabs the files, and goes to where it all began. Once there, he meets Dr. Albert Hirsch, played by Albert Finney, who helps Jason realize the moment it all started, when he shot an unknown American point-blank in order to, quote, save American lives. Bourne refuses to murder Hirsch because Jason Bourne no longer exists. The cold-blooded killer is done. But Paz is hot on Bourne's trail despite living through a seemingly deadly or at least paralyzing car crash. Meanwhile, Landy is faxing the documents to the press that Bourne took from Boson's office, so the CIA's carte blanche operations can end once and for all. After a chase to the rooftop, Paz refuses to assassinate Bourne, after Bourne asks him, look at what they make you give. But Boson shoots Bourne as he hurdles 10 stories into the Hudson River. Not long after, Vosen, Hirsch, and CIA director Ezra Miller, played by Scott Glenn, are taken into custody. Nikki is safe and sound, and Bourne swims away to live another day as credits roll. Okay, so I, I do have to ask, because I am I am a curious man. Um, yes. What are your thoughts on this opening? Because every time I've watched it, up until I think now, I've always just been confused as to when this opening takes place and like what role it has in the rest of the story. Now I understand it more um, that it takes place not, at least the opening part takes place not long after he um, talks to the daughter of, I guess it was his hit in the, in the last movie. Um, and that kind of sets up the, that kind of sets up the story in some ways, but what are your thoughts on this opening? Cause I always found it to be very confusing. Yeah, the opening in Moscow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have always found it to be confusing as well. There's always at least like one scene in every movie that I'm just never quite clear on anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I was always confused because I always assumed this scene was around the time um, that Bourne was running from the police. He barely jumped and missed the train, and then he jumped over the bridge and hurt his leg on the boat. Mm -hmm. I always thought we were just seeing a snippet of uh, maybe what he did after the boat, what was going on there. Um, now, surprise, that boat scene, I believe, occurred in Berlin, Germany, um, because that was before he went to Russia. Right. So, yeah, I was always confused as well. I did finally get confirmation through the blu-ray deleted scenes that once we see Bourne walk away from his confession to the Nesky girl and we see him just like limping away in the snow this is that night this is what's happening after that right right um kind of to jump you back into it and then of course as we know the movie jumps forward in time six weeks later but yeah 
confusing, especially for a movie that is going to go out of its way to explain to audiences the last two films and even go so far as to remake certain parts of it. Mm -hmm. You're right. It's an odd choice to open the film. Yeah, it is an odd choice. And I mean, it does kind of set up like Jason Bourne's character uh, kind of again, in some ways that, you know, he's not going to he's not going to kill if he can help it because uh, he has he has the uh, officer. He takes out two officer or takes out one of the officers that strike him down into um, that bathroom area. And then let's see, let's the other officer go. But of course, destroys his radio, so he can't call him in. So it kind of sits up in a lot of ways. It kind of sits up that, you know, Jason Bourne is just continuing in some ways his journey from the last movie where he's choosing not to kill. um, But he's just trying to, you know, get away from police custody. He's trying to be free. So it it sets up that. But it, it is an interesting opening to start off on. When there isn't like a whole lot of context that it's right after he talked to Nesky's daughter um, and then left the rooftop after talking to Pam um, and walking off into the city. So it's an interesting opening. It is ironic because it takes place in Moscow, Russia. They couldn't shoot in Russia. So they actually shot this in Berlin, Germany. Okay. And they look very similar. So it's just kind of like, oh, that's ironic. So I'm curious to just talk about this first act in general, because the first act is, as you said, a lot of setup of showing Bourne's motivations that he's not uh, really a cold-blooded killer anymore. And he's come a long way since just just taking out people more so instinctively. Now he has much more choice and control over his actions, and he has more so of a purpose. He says, my fight is not with you signifying that he's not quite done yet. We also jump back to Landy and we get to hear Abbott's confession from part two. And she basically kind of gives us a rundown of some of the events that transpired in the previous film. We have the new CIA director whose motives are kind of questionable to begin with. Yeah. In the deleted scenes, his motivations are much more clear cut. They are not slowly revealed throughout the movie and then we get born coming to marie's half brother in paris france right which i feel like that scene is incredibly needless and greengrass purposely wanted it to be like a callback to the end of the born supremacy when he makes his confession to the nesky girl right and I don't know, this this doesn't go anywhere. I actually always found this to be very confusing. Yeah. Even though I watch this every time, he's like, where's my sister? I'm like, what? Yep. I'm I'm like, so you know, how do you how in the world do you know what Jason Bourne looks like? Do you th- really think that Jason would let Marie send a photograph of them? Unless it's just in the news that they're at large. But then if it's in the news at large, how does he not know his sister was uh, assassinated like six, seven weeks ago. Right. I can, I can, I guess I can, uh, alleviate that he was, that he knew that Jason and Marie were together because they were on the news in the first one. Um, there was like a brief, uh, clip of it, but yeah, you are correct. How does he not know that she was murdered? Because I know that that was also in the news, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think it was at least. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I can buy, I'll say this, I can buy the fact that he that he knows who Jason Bourne is, but he doesn't know where his sister is, right? I can buy that. 
What I don't understand is why the movie doesn't explain that this is her half-brother again to us. Because there's a drop line in the Born identity that she has one. Right. But it, it, it she he just kind of goes to him and talks to him and doesn't really, you know, set up that this is the relationship between this guy and Marie that, you know, is her half-brother. So, yeah, this scene also confused me when I was watching it every time, actually, until... Uh, actually, you explained the plot summary that it is her half brother. I was like, "Who is this?" Because I know it's not the same guy from uh, from Born Identity because I think that was her. Uh, that was a different actor. So yeah, this is also an interesting choice to make. Um, you know why? How does he know where he lives? How does you know what's his role in all this? It, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just don't. It doesn't really give the audience much of anything except to except to try and catch them up and give them tethers to the first two films. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about it more later, but this is something Greengrass specifically wanted to do. He wanted to say, like, if people hadn't seen the first two, two installments and they're coming to the end of the trilogy, I want them to be able to watch this film and not and not be confused or lost. Yeah. So yeah. that influenced a lot of decisions. Right. That they made. There's also another confusing point here in the beginning where born after Paris, France, he just randomly goes to a news station, picks up the Guardian newspaper and gets on a train. And he is reading about himself and that there's this reporter, Simon Ross, who seems to know everything. Now. Something this movie does very well, actually, is it kind of pulls a Jason Bourne and just like strong arms you and just whisks you away before you can like really have time to put up a fight as to what's exactly going on. Yeah. So every time I watch this movie, especially without my SSG goggles on, I'm just the movie goes so fast. I'm just going with everything and don't question it. But then when I actually had to scrutinize everything and write out the plot summary, I'm like, wait a minute. There's like not really a lot of connective tissue between yeah. how scenes and characters come in contact with each other and occur. Well, that's because they cut out a lot of this connective tissue. They pulled a Batman v Superman hmm. and they just lost a lot of that. So Bourne goes to like a safe house in France. He's not just there to see Marie's brother. He's also there to get information because you'll remember the safe house in France is where they had the final confrontation in the first film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he goes there and he interrogates CIA operatives and they tell him that uh, English reporter Simon Ross is reporting on him. He seems to have a lot of answers that they, that these low level CIA people don't even know, which mm-hmm. prompts Bourne to buy the Guardian newspaper and head to London. Ah, see, that makes so much more sense because it seems like a really big coincidence that Jason Bourne <laughs> just decides to buy a newspaper that just so happens to be the Guardian newspaper that just yep. so happens to have Simon Ross's article in it. It seems yes. really coincidental that all this happens so that it would seem makes a whole lot more sense um, now that you explain it. Yeah, it it was kind of surprising to watch that. I'm like, oh. Well, okay, now I get it. Yeah. And I mean, that's kind of also part of my issue with some of the way that this movie plays out. There are a lot of coincidences in it. Um, mm-hmm. This being probably the one of the bigger ones. Um, because, yeah, I, as I said, he just so happens to buy the same newspaper with Simon Ross's, uh, Simon Ross's uh, 
uh, article in it. I think you mentioned this in the plot summary. Bourne just happens to see Noah Volson putting in the Blackbriar files in his office. Yeah, so. I, I've always hated that part. Yeah. I uh, I mean he is he looks at the exact time he's putting a Blackbriar file yep. into his bag, and it was funny because I didn't even I couldn't even read the file. It was so quick, mm-hmm. and I asked my dad. I was like, "What was that?" My dad said, "Oh, it said Blackbriar top secret on it," and I'm like, "So Bourne caught it at the exact right moment, but I couldn't." Yep. If I'm not mistaken, Bourne also he knows who Noah Vosen is because he talked with uh, he was on the phone with with Nikki in Madrid. Mm-hmm. That's something I forgot about, but I don't believe he's ever seen Vosen. So I don't know if he knows who he is, but he knows to call him later on in the film. And he knows that his safe needs voice identification, mm-hmm. which I don't know how he knows that, except he exam- he possibly examined the safe and saw maybe that was like a voice reader. And so that's why he had to call him in order to get his voice once again. If you sit down and think about it, it's just like, what? Yeah, yeah. I can I can uh, buy the save scene, um, but the coincidences are... Uh, yeah. <laughs> Coincidence? I think not. Yeah, yeah. But, okay, once we do get to the Waterloo Station, I'm hooked. Yeah. By the way, I have been to Waterloo Station before. Well... Oh, you have? Kinda. Um, <laughs> so... Way a couple of years ago from this recording, um, marching band of the college I went to, we went to London to march in the New Year's Day parade. Actually, we headed it. Um, and so while we were there the whole week, we got to tour London. And one of the places I wanted to go to was Waterloo Station because of this movie. Oh, um, nice. I didn't get to go inside because when we get there, they we have passes for what's called what's their subway station. Their subway uh, system is called the tube. We had passes to ride the tube to different places, but we only had so many swipes and I couldn't go up to see, I couldn't go up into Waterloo Station because I would lose a swipe and then that would mean I had to buy a ticket to get on the train. So I at least got a picture somewhere with a picture of me next to the Waterloo sign to go up the stairs into the station. But I have been to kind of this station because of this movie. Nice. Well, if you were just a regular person walking around in 2007 at Waterloo, then you probably would be in this movie. Yep. Because I was shocked to find out they did not shut down Waterloo Station. They couldn't do it. The British government was like, uh, are you kidding me? No. They're like, yeah. you can film here, but you can't disrupt people. You can't shut things down. So they shot between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., considered the off-peak hours. <laughs> so everyone running around in the background are average citizens going about their day. And they are just a camera crew literally running through the station, mm-hmm. really pushing past people. And it's really funny to watch. People look very confused. Um, not in the film, but on the extras. I mean, uh, Damon is just booking it through the station and people are like trying to stop and get out of his way and the camera crew is just trailing behind him. They're just yeah. rushing behind him and everybody's like, what is going on? So I didn't know that. That gives it a level of authenticity I can really appreciate. Yeah, and it's the same with the Tangier scene too, right? They yep. couldn't exactly clear it out so they just filmed there anyways. But yeah, it is interesting that they, they were able to do that because, um, you know, usually you clear it out and get a bunch of extras. So yeah, it's it is interesting to see that they are in a couple of scenes. They literally couldn't do that. So they just, you know, like, all right, fine. And so they filmed it anyways. 
And that's really amazing because I've always kind of like wondered about that stuff anyway, is sometimes it does look very real in certain movies, but I know it's just a set and those are extras. Yeah. This is not a set and those are not extras. Right. This is uh, real life. <laughs> this is real life. Same with um, Tangier when they're going through the crowds in Tangier, just regular people. It also just so happened to be during the Muslim uh, holy month or holy time of That's Ramadan. Right. That's right. Yeah. Which made things a lot more difficult. And the security was a much different issue mm-hmm. shooting at uh, the tip of Africa than it was in England. But nevertheless, this is very authentic. And that's something that I've always loved about this movie and commended it for is I think this movie does a better job than the previous one of capturing the realism of the moment. This really does feel like this kind of real life espionage uh, movie. Like all of this stuff could happen and could be happening because in some ways they really are filming it in the moment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I would say that especially with Supremacy and with Ultimatum, uh, these are the two movies that really push for the realism. Identity did to a certain point. It does still have some of its 2000 cheese in it. Um, <laughs> but I would say, especially with these two, when I think of uh, realism, This is these are the two movies that I think of when that comes to this trilogy because they really do push for that realism with these two movies. And it's kind of cool to hear that you know, they had, they couldn't clear out some of these areas. They had to just film with people there anyways, um, which makes it kind of fun to watch because they're, they're real people actually going to their jobs and there's just happens to be a movie being shot, shot at the same time. So it, it's interesting to see that. I, I guess I would say that I think I like Supremacy's way of going about it a little bit better in some ways. Because there are a few scenes where uh, there's like nothing but just, you know, that natural sound that's happening when you're in the CIA um, offices that I I think Mm -hmm. I enjoy a little bit more than Ultimatum. But still that still being said, uh, yeah, these two movies are especially this one, too, are very interesting in how they deal with its realism. Speaking of the CIA offices, I really like how it's evolved over the course of the films. Mm -hmm. Because in the first movie, they're kind of in a very seemingly dimly lit windowless basement. Yep. Whereas now they are out in the open with big open windows on a high rise in the middle of New York. Right. Right. And uh, I just like how the first movie was very covert. And now this this uh, movie is they're very open about it. But it is surprising to see how. The CIA director is involved. Mm-hmm. Um, Vosen is clearly just like, yeah, we've got carte blanche. We will assassinate whoever we want, when we want, whoever gets in our way. Um, there is a deleted scene of Paz assassinating um, an American national at the U.S. Embassy in Madrid. Okay. While at the same time, the new CIA director is being confirmed by the Senate, and he is just the squeaky clean guy who's there to really just kind of clean up the CIA and make sure things like Blackbriar never occur. Right. And the irony of it is he is 100% behind it the whole time. Mm -hmm. So kind of just their uh, very uh, blase, uh, brazen uh, now efforts of just all these assassinations at a high rise instead of being secret in a basement. I like the contrast. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting too because now we finally get to see – like the guy, that being Volson, 
who is kind of the leader of Black Briar in a lot of ways. We kind of get to see him play, I would say, uh, one of the most demanding roles when it comes to his placement in the story. Because in the last movies, it seems like Jason Bourne had complete control over the story in reality. And everybody else was just kind of playing catch up. Um, and, and this one, uh, Noah Volson seems to be like a real threat to, or at least tries to be a real threat to Jason Bourne. He, he feels like he is willing to pull a lot of punches uh, when it comes to like actually taking out somebody and Pamela Landy calls him out for it. And she's like, you don't. And when he tries to kill when he says, uh, put, uh, put Jason Bourne and Nikki on the kill list. And then, uh, Pamela Landy is like, you don't have authorization to do that. And he goes, oh yes, I do. So yeah. he, it, I like his character because I feel like there's a lot of, I feel like he is willing to use what power he has to its fullest extent. To a point where obviously he's a villain of the story and it becomes it becomes somewhat of an ethics game where, you know, uh, how much of his power should he use in this situation? I like that idea of his character. I've always liked David Strathairn as an actor, mm -hmm. and I think he steps into the series very nicely. And it's kind of just become I, I think of the series as each one kind of has a big bad yeah. And I think they all are great in their own respect. Conklin, Abbott, and now Vosin. And Vosin is, like we said, much more sinister and brazen. He's not trying to cover up his motives like Abbott was in the last one. Yeah. And he definitely is more so a thorn in Bourne's side where he's much more vigorous, whereas Abbott has was always trying to stop born but doing it from the shadows and through proxies this one is really uh, straight out so vosin i think is a great addition to this film the one thing though that i do take issue with and wish they would have done with this character is i wish born would have had a connection to vosin in his past mm -hmm. because if vosin is the head of black briar and born was the square one for black briar then I wish they would have had more of a connection. Um, I wish that Volson may have been kind of the missing piece to the puzzle because he got flashes of Daniels and we dealt with his character and then he got flashes of Hirsch and he eventually deals with uh, Dr. Hirsch. Mm -hmm. But Volson just never really comes into play into Bourne's life aside from being just this new kind of constant annoyance he continually has to deal with. I really do think it's a missed opportunity that they didn't put him into one of the final flashbacks. And he remembers that Vosin has always been the one pulling the strings. And now he has, that's why he has this huge vendetta against him as well. I, I just am disappointed with that. Yeah. Maybe if they had, I think it'd be interesting if they had switched um, Vosin's character with Hirsch's character. Um, I agree. Where I agree. you have this man, that being Hirsch, who is older, but he knows his power, right? Um, and then, of course, you've come to find out he's kind of the guy who was there when he um, let him into that Jason Bourne into the program. That would be an interesting idea if they had played out put out that way. Uh, and in in some ways, the way that they played out now is Jason Bourne is the one who finds uh, Hirsch. Hirsch never really steps into the picture. Um, until Jason Bourne wants to find him. Um, right. So in some ways, I kind of like that they keep Hirsch in the shadows for a good chunk of the movie um, because it's Jason Bourne seeking out the truth. So I think that thematically his character works. 
Um, but it would be interesting to see uh, a power struggle with Hirsch's character against Pamela Landy's character. Yeah, and I was always confused um, when I watched this when I was younger because I really thought Albert Hirsch was Brian Cox. Yeah, no, I did too when I when I watched this movie back in the day. I'm like, did they just get somebody that has like the same build and look on purpose? That always threw me off. It took me forever to figure it out. Mm -hmm. But I will say that this time around, I've always liked Albert Hirsch's voice. He does kind of have this very menacing. He is a doctor. He um, is a part of uh, this kind of medical weird uh, psychological torture they kind of use to induce uh, them into the program, just totally yeah. dissociate with themselves. So I do like he is this very kind of dark menace that has the probably the greatest connection to Bourne's life. Mm -hmm. But since he has this great connection to him, I do wish that their confrontation was a bit more meaningful. And it's hard for it to be, I would say, too meaningful or connective when we have not really learned anything about Hirsch's character. We really just do get that small chunk at the end. So I wish something was fleshed out a little bit more. That's why I'm saying I think it could have been supplemented with Vosin. Also, you realize Vosin was a part of the process as well, because we at least get to know Vosin's character throughout the whole film. Right. And then that really could have been like Vosin comes in. At, Vosin does come in at the end. He's the one that shoots Bourne. Right. Which is pretty meaningful to shoot Jason Bourne and be the one to supposedly kill him. I just feel like we're missing some stuff there. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I wish that there was more connective tissue with uh, Hirsch's character because they also really don't introduce him until very late into the story. Like actually introduce him. Like the he's teased act. here and there. Um, but then late into the movie, then they actually introduce Hirsch's character and explain who he is. Um, yeah. So yeah, some of that, you know, emotionally connective tissue with him and Jason Bourne is it doesn't really show up until the very ending. Uh, one of the major compliments of this movie, though, that has always stood out to me and will probably always stand out is probably the fighting mm -hmm. and the action sequences. Oh, the yeah. Fight with, the fight with Dash and Tangier, where Jason Bourne busts through that window and Dash is really great, nearly bests Bourne. That's probably probably the best fight in the series yeah in my I would, opinion. yeah i agree so far this is definitely the best hand-to-hand -hand fight uh in the series so far and i remember watching a uh like a behind the scenes of this of this scene um it was kind of funny because they were talking about you know how they kind of all put it all together that like candle uh base that he has that des picks up is just a, like a rubber base <laughs> and so he like was flung it around it wouldn't really hurt uh we wouldn't really hurt uh, Matt Damon, but the, uh, their goal for the scene was them to just kind of take everything or any take any th object that was in the room and use it as some kind of a weapon. So that's why he uses yeah. that base, and then Jason also picks up a book and uses that as well. Yeah, they were throwing each other into glass cases. I, if I remember right, there wasn't like a whole lot of blocking that they had set up for the scene. They just kind of set mm -hmm. it up um, and just let them roll with it. Um, so like everything was breakaways. So if he did ran into the uh, bookcase. Of course, it just shatters everything. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I remember watching a behind the scenes of this this show, like, you know, how they planned it all out in the behind the scenes to see what, you know, what the background was. This is kind of interesting. I think it's oh, on the yeah. Blu-ray. I think is where I saw it. 
Yeah, it's a great fight. Mm -hmm. And also, I'd probably say this is my favorite car chase in the series. I know Supremacy is fantastic, yep. but this one is great because especially when um, Jason gets pushed up onto the K rail yeah. by Paz and just they utterly obliterate each other. The car goes flying off and when Bourne backs up off the rooftop. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was so good. And I love Vosen's reaction. I'm I'm probably the most invested in this car chase because it, it seems the most desperate and it seems like Bourne is the one that's really on the run here. Mm -hmm. He's always been on the run, but this one is like very desperate and he's so close to his goal and it seems like he's about to get stopped. Plus he's racing in New York City, which isn't exactly a easy thing to do. It's right. not like Moscow where it's like 16 lanes across. Mm -hmm. uh, this one, probably my favorite car chase. Yeah, I would say just all around the action in this movie is definitely the best it has ever been so far with Jason Bourne um, in his this trilogy. I think this definitely has the best action um, and also definitely has some of the best music. If I were to listen to any of the soundtracks, it's probably this one that I listen to the most, especially mm -hmm. that track in Tangier, which is like seven minutes long. Um, mm -hmm. the track on the, on the album, um, it's a lot of fun to listen to. So yeah, no, this is definitely action wise, music wise, the best it's ever looked. And I think that's kind of why I remember it so much is because this was for a good chunk of time. Uh, one of my favorites, definitely my favorite of the trilogy, but one of my favorite movies is just in general, because this mm -hmm. action, I remember, as I stated before, I do enjoy that this handheld camera, which I feel is uh, a bit more polished this time around because we both noted it in Supremacy, it's a bit too shaky. And I feel in this one, yeah. they kind of found a good balance of shaky, but not too shaky, where it makes it feel realistic, but at the same time, doesn't overstep its boundaries. And that really helps with these fight scenes and these action scenes because it does give it some a good sense of realism without going so far that you can't see anything. And so that, I think that's why I remember this movie as much as I do and like it. I liked it back when the day um, is because I remember these action scenes always being very exhilarating, especially in Ultimatum. Yeah, I totally agree. They actually can keep the camera still mm -hmm. for a moment, um, especially during certain scenes where they are more uh, talking scenes. Now, of course, they've got the little jitter in the camera, but it's really not that obnoxious. It's uh, pretty, pretty restrained. And yeah, when the camera does get shaky for action, um, they do a good job of not making it utterly ridiculous or yeah, my eyes just glazed over oftentimes in the last movie because mm -hmm. <laughs> I just couldn't track with anything. This one does definitely pull me in. I still don't completely like it. I still don't think it's great. That is one of the things I'm still I'm glad about, but at the same time, I'm still kind of disappointed about that. I think they could have tuned some of it up and not made every single thing kind of more shaky, but mm -hmm. they do a good job at least of making it feel more like he's on the street and they're running after him because that's actually what they were doing. <laughs> right, right. Now, I do kind of want to talk about Landy's character again, kind of like how we talked about her in the last podcast, because in the last movie we talked about how she's kind of the uh, innocent bystander in a lot of ways to the situation and how she wants to... Uh, she wants. She's the one who is innocent to the truth of the situation with Treadstone, Blackbriar, Abbott's character, and then of course Jason Bourne's character. And it's kind of the same way in this one, although I feel like now she has a big, a much bigger threat 
because Vosen is also a part of the picture and he has a lot more power than Abbott did. And so it's this interesting power struggle to see Pam's character having to deal with what is the right thing to do in this situation when you have Vosen's character who has um, maybe about the same amount of power as she does, but has a much more commanding authority. And then you've also got Ezra Kramer's character who has more power than uh, than Landy's character, but both of both them are in cahoots. You know, she's stuck right in the middle of these two characters who are working together with for the same situation. And she's the one who has to like figure out what's the right, what's the right thing to do? How do I reveal what's really true and what should be done without, uh, I guess, uh, without the other two knowing or without them getting involved? Yeah, she's like the conscience between between the extreme of Vosen and between the extreme of Born. Yeah. Where Bourne is very much rogue, like, I kind of just have to burn down the whole thing. And Vosin is, like, kind of thinking the same thing where he's like, I'm going to go rogue, but within the safety of my government sanctions, and I'm just going to take out whoever I wish. And she's like, Bourne, you're trying to do the right thing. I don't think you're a threat. We need to talk. And she's also trying to quell the CIA, who's just really become a monstrosity, yeah. you could say, in this yeah. movie. So her role is very significant in this film. And I would say she's probably, aside from Jason Bourne himself, probably one of the best parts of this trilogy. I think uh, Joan Allen does a fantastic job um, playing the role. And at the same time, uh, she is just a great character. Um, it is interesting because there was more of a power struggle there is, uh, if I haven't mentioned already, there are 12 and a half minutes of deleted scenes Ooh. that were made available. There's a lot. Yeah. Um, there is, do you remember the scene where, um, land, where, uh, some guy comes into Landy's office and he says the CIA director wants to see you in his office. Yeah. It's urgent. Yeah. And then we cut to Bourne, I think on the train ride to Waterloo. And then we cut back to Landy and she's not meeting the CIA director. She's meeting Vosin for like a little lunch where he orders the heart healthy omelet. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty confusing. I always thought. Mm -hmm. I always thought she's supposed to be meeting the CIA director. She meets Vosin. Well, that's because there's this huge cut subplot. Okay. Where Landy is actually uh, fired from the CIA. Oh, really? Yeah. She is fired because... Uh, she thinks Bourne is not a threat and she's really working against the intentions of the secret intentions of the director and Vosin. Okay. So they're saying you are, you've become a liability. You're not going to play ball with us. So you're fired. But this is also occurring at the same time that, um, Bourne appears in, uh, Waterloo station. She's the only one that really knows how Bourne works because of her experience in supremacy. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they have to bring her back in order to use her help to find Bourne. And then later on, we also know they're bringing her back because uh, if all of this goes south, then they're going to shut down Blackbriar and hang it all on her. She's going to become the scapegoat. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's why she is fired and she's cleaning up her office. But then she is called in by Vosin to go have this like brunch type thing. And that's why they have this really kind of awkward, smug conversation between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And that's why he mentions I'm buying lunch because in the previous scene, he was like really snotty to her. 
and said like, well, serves you right. So I will say that their, their scene always did feel disjointed at, uh, lunch it just always felt out of place yeah now i know why yeah it, i mean because i always felt like uh pamela was always you know very very stern toward him whenever that scene came up i guess it makes a bit more sense in the context with other, with the deleted scene and it also makes more sense when um landy wants to call the cia director and tell him what's going on and he won't take her call yeah. that's because yeah. In that in that uh, missing scene, he has fired her and told her like you're you're really just not going along with us. So that gives us more insight into his character motivation as to why he's not taking her call. Right, right. So you can tell there's a lot cut from this movie. Yeah, that is just I think really would have helped make more Definitely. sense. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, because there, the more that the more deleted scenes you explain to me, the more sense <laughs> this movie makes. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, okay, let's just get this out of the way. Nikki is once again pretty much useless. I she has a little bit of use to her. Um, she is able to sidetrack Dash for a little while. Um, uh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I would say my biggest problem with uh, Julia Stiles is her acting because she's always been kind of wooden in the last couple of movies, partially just because of the tone of those movies. Mm -hmm. uh, but I feel like I really feel it here. Like it almost feels like she doesn't really want to be there um, because she's her acting is like so stern and so wooden. Um that's, I think, is my bigger issue. She, I find her more distracting just because of her acting. I just feel like she's also brought back in. It's kind of ridiculous how much of a coincidence they just keep popping into each other's lives. Yeah, that's true. She just can also kind of just show up at Daniels' apartment. And we do get at least more motivation as to why she's been more sympathetic to Bourne and, and she wants to help him. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you get the sense that they had a romantic past? Because she said, really, but oh, you never got that. I've hmm. always got that because she says it was really hard for me. You know, um, like once you lost your memory, mm -hmm. which I always led to the conclusion that they had some kind of past together or else. Why would it be really hard for her to for him to be like this? Right. I mean, I, I can definitely see that they're. Maybe it's maybe um, them hinting towards some romantic past, but I don't think I ever got uh, got that from this movie. I think they try also to somewhat play her off as somewhat of a Marie character. Um, because oh, 100%. Yeah, because there is that scene when she does redo her hair dark and then cuts it just like Marie does um, while they're both in a, a hotel room. Um, but of course, her character goes a completely different route than Marita. She does run off. Um, so there is maybe, I guess, in retrospect, there's a little bit there, um, a bit of a romantic angle there. Um, but uh, I guess yeah, thematically, her character doesn't really work nearly as well as Marie's does because, we, as we noted, Marie was definitely a um, an anchor for Bourne. And Julia Stiles' character, eh, not really. Okay, I'll come I'll conclude with my positives here because then I do want to jump into other stuff that mm -hmm. especially what we're talking about here. But okay. before we get into that, I want to say that I think this movie has a really exciting ending, knowing Jason is alive, watching him swim away. And I do like 
that there is this kind of finale, uh, finality of the government being held accountable. And especially it all kind of seems all too real right now, especially within the past few years of like all these government leaks and everybody's being hauled before the Senate. Yep. Yeah, actually, I got a lot of Edward Snowden vibes when uh, yeah. the, the Black Briar keyword comes up in the mm-hmm. CIA. And I was like, because <laughs> I came out, this movie came out a few years before uh, Snowden released all those documents. Um, but I was like, that's interesting, you know. And I do like how it ties back to the first movie where Abbott goes before the Senate. Mm. And he's like, yeah, Treadstone's no big deal. It's been shut down. But we would like more funding for Black Briar. Yep. And if you are... They'd have the subtitles on at the very least, or you have incredible hearing. You would know they brought up Black Briar in the first movie. Yeah, I did notice it, and uh, I think I maybe even mentioned it in a previous podcast that they talked about Black Briar and Born Identity. So that's where this all comes from. I also got to mention, I feel that once Born does learn his true past, I find it to be very satisfying, actually. Mm-hmm. Because I would say, like, Born's villainy is, like, really driven home but how he shoots a person in a hood without even knowing who they are, or what they've done. Very much um, Bruce Wayne, League of Shadows. Chop that guy's head off, even though you don't know anything about him. He's just a criminal. Yeah, yeah. Except Bruce Wayne doesn't do it. Uh, but Bourne does it, and it's all for the purpose of saving American lives, trying to question the motives of what the government has done post 9-11, if any of it is justified or necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think the flashbacks are really good. Once again, I always found them to be very troubling and scary when I was younger. Yeah. Um, they're, they're pulling a hood over his head. They're drowning him. It seems very creepy and cultish. And it seems like something we would do to terrorists and not to citizens uh, or soldiers to like get them on board with everything. Yeah, yeah. I do have to say this too. Uh, it is interesting that the first time we see Born, he's pulled from water, and then the last uh, time we see Born, he swims away in the Hudson River. Um, yeah, I do love that. I love that how he's floating there, just like at the beginning of the first movie. Yep, yep. So it's kind of it is tying back to how it all started, where uh, he, as we've talked about, he's pulled from the water um, as if he's reborn. Um, and then when he swims away, he's swimming away now fully knowing his past and is able to swim away with that and kind of, I guess, be cleansed in some ways of uh, what he's done um, And now that he knows what's happened. So, yeah, it's they, of course, end on that, which is interesting. Something we haven't talked about and something that I was never really clear on until I did quite a bit of research for this movie is remember when we talked about how the Born supremacy basically had two ends to it. Yeah, yeah. One where Born walks away in Russia, and then one where he calls Pam in New York. Mm-hmm. Little did I realize that between the time Born walks away, and that's where this movie picks up, where he's walking away in Russia, and then where he calls Pam at the end of supremacy, this movie takes place between those two time periods. Yeah, I was wondering that because there is that scene when Bourne is talking to Pam and it's essentially a replay of the ending of Supremacy. And I was like, wait, does that mean that these movies are kind of playing at the same time um, in parts of it? So. Yeah, and they they did confirm that on the director's commentary. Okay. That 
it doesn't really make sense for Bourne to be in New York at the end of Supremacy. Mm-hmm. And then they make a huge deal of him coming to New York in the in Ultimatum. Okay. Yeah. So he falls into the Hudson River and he basically stays in New York. And at the after Ultimatum is done, then he calls Pam, um, which is what we see at the end of Supremacy. Oh, interesting. Okay. Okay. So technically, the very end of Supremacy is the very end of this trilogy. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, in a way, I think Supremacy works by itself, but I think it's vital that we do get a conclusion as to how Bourne came to be, his very origins. And I like his origins in this, but it is weird when you do think that they're like, well, we kind of wrote ourselves into a corner with having Bourne come to New York at the end of Supremacy. So let's have everything, let's have the entire film of Ultimatum take place before that scene in New York. Yeah, that's, that is a little bit confusing. I mean, I understand, I guess, from a, from a story-wise, why they wouldn't want to do that, but that is interesting. Okay, let's talk about the negatives, because I've, I've, we've already touched on some issues with this movie, but yeah, I kind of have a laundry, <laughs> I kind of have a laundry list to go through, actually. It's interesting, too, because I didn't realize how many, I guess, um, negatives I would have until I was watching it for this last time, because like I said, it was one of my favorites for a while, and now I'm coming back mm-hmm. to it, I was like, what? So I don't know a few things. So, well, we just talked about this a little bit ago. So something I wanted to circle back to is I really feel frustrated by how encumbered this film is by remaking just straight up remaking parts of the first film and the second film. It's heavy usage of flashbacks also, and it's heavy usage of explaining previous situations. It seems like for the express purpose of either catching up audiences who hadn't seen the first two or at the very least just padding out the runtime by kind of making it this like all encompassing movie. There's actually a full list on Wikipedia of how this movie is in many ways a remake of one and two. Yeah, yeah. I I did briefly look at the list. There's a lot of similarities, a lot of callbacks to those previous two. And I think one of the things that probably frustrated me the most is Nikki's basically Marie being Mm 2.0, how they recreate the scene in the diner. They recreate the scene in the hotel room. She dyes her hair, cuts her hair. I mean, I feel like bringing back Julia Stiles just to make her Marie 2.0 feels like a bad joke. Yeah. It just feels really out of place, really pointless. Also, Jason has to contend with multiple assassins just like he did. In the first one, um, I do really like the line where he says, look at what they make you give. Yeah, that's I like a good that. callback. I like that callback um, where he, uh, I use, I, I at least interpreted it as him kind of realizing that the professor from Born Identity was right when he said that, mm-hmm. like, you know, what, what, look at what they make you give. And they, he repeats that line to, uh, to Paz. And yeah, and good. that's what makes Paz not shoot him. It's, is actually Noah Volson, who surprisingly doesn't really change throughout the story. And because of that, he, uh, well, partially because of that, he is the one who's taken in. But yeah. I think removing Nikki from the movie would make the pacing, would make things like a lot tighter and yeah. cleaner. Yeah. I because agree. at one, because, okay, I'm going to say it's just 
bad the second act of this movie is the Tangier scene is way too long. And part of that is because Dash now has orders to hunt down Nikki. And I thought if Nikki just wasn't in this movie there, I feel like the tension is very contrived at this point like they expressly brought her in to create tension that's the one thing that just doesn't feel organic to me i mean i guess they work it in the best way they can but at the same time she's slowing down the runtime um just to give you some numbers here the tangier sequence from the time they cross over in the river and the more i think about it the more like born and nikki scenes are like painfully awkward where they just have really quiet moments emotionless conversations Anyways, their scene from the time they get on the boat to the time Bourne leaves Tangier is 25 minutes wow. of the movie. I didn't realize it was that long. <laughs> wow, 25 minutes. Long. The dash. Okay, so the dash sequence from the time Dash um, begins his journey to ends his journey in life is 20 minutes long. And okay. the chase scene itself from the time Bourne gets up after the explosion to chase Dash, and then by the time he kills Dash, it's a 10-minute long chase scene. Yeah, okay, that is an interesting point you do bring up, too, because uh, if Nikki wasn't in the picture, like if she just wasn't in the movie at all, um, and I and some I guess I understand why they wanted to bring her back, because she was in the last two, and they're tying up this, <laughs> they're tying up this trilogy. Um, uh, if she wasn't in this movie at all, you bring up a good point. Would this scene have been more exhilarating because there would have been more tension added to it because it's just Dash and Bourne. Um, I wonder what that would have been like. You know, I don't want to see Nikki die, but at the same time, we we have never been given any kind of connection to Nikki mm-hmm. or importance of her character. Yeah, this is like uh, the only time they ever try to give something to her, a connection to Bourne, like, like an emotional connection. Yeah, there's really no emotional connection and there's really no weight. I don't want to see her assassinated, but at the same time, even if audiences hadn't seen the past two films, like I said, it really feels contrived to hunt her down because she's not that much of a threat. It's just Vosin being power hungry. And that's another issue I have is Vosin and the CIA director come across as a little like snidely whiplash villainous where they're just twiddling their mustaches. And I feel like at times they're too one dimensional. They're just like too evil where it's like, all right, everybody's assassinated. And they're even tapping (laughs) Pam Landy's phone lines and they, you don't know, they might take her out too. I understand they're power hungry, but at the same time, it's like, really, you're just going to start shooting like everybody. Yeah. Yeah. How far does it need to go before it's too far? Uh, I, I think, and I think that's kind of my question of this whole movie, you know, how far does it need to go before it's too far? Because while these chase scenes are, while these action scenes are very fun, there are also a lot of them. This Tangier scene, as you said, the chase part of it takes 10 minutes to, to, to come across, to finish it. And a lot of the, the action scenes just in general are just really long. And this movie is very, very action heavy. So I, the, I guess the biggest question for me in this film, especially, is when does it go too far? Um, and I think that it is a lot. In general, it's a very fun movie. But at the same time, I, I think that in especially with these action scenes, I think it does push it a little bit over the edge, at least in my own opinion. Yeah, I was curious about that because I remember the Tangier sequence being very exciting Mm -hmm. and it does conclude with a very good fight. I do like Bourne's on a motorcycle that's different instead of just getting beat up in a car. And we do get a 
second chase at the end in a great car chase. Right. But nevertheless, this chase went on for so long where especially when the streets become empty, there is some tension. I do kind of like that nightmare feeling of there's people all of a sudden and now there's no people. And it's like you can't ever escape wherever you go. Dash is kind of like Michael Myers, like always going to find you. Yeah. So I do kind of like we do get a little bit of a horror vibe here. But at the same time, it goes on for too long. I actually found myself beginning to doze a little bit. Okay. Because it there just like wasn't anything happening. It was taking Bourne forever to get to Dash. I really think they uh, made it too long, which for me threw off the pacing. I kind of hate the second act of this film. And... It's weird because the first act moves at lightning speed to the detriment of having that connective tissue to the plot. Mm -hmm. Then the second act is like one giant chase scene. And then the third act does redeem itself. It does wrap everything else nice up pretty well. But the pacing is just weird in this movie. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because it got an Oscar for editing. Um, yeah, I did not. And uh, no. I don't really know how much I agree with that. Uh, an Oscar for editing for Born Ultimatum. Uh, I don't. I don't think that this is Oscar worthy uh, <laughs> for editing. At least I, I think that nope. it's you know it's edited all right, but not Oscar levels. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it got editing for. It's action scenes. I think those are edited fairly well. Yeah. But as for like conveying a logical story and with its pacing, uh, they, they should have figured out a way to cut down the second act of this film because the Tangier scene is its own entire scene. It, it's so long. And for mm -hmm. a movie that's moving at lightning speed, like I thought Born Supremacy moved fast. Like I said, this movie just like strong arms you and you got to run yeah. and you move with its pace. And I just really didn't like that. Um, one other thing I forgot to mention is with the villains in this movie, I loved in the first movie how the government's motivation was very ambiguous. They weren't mm -hmm. going to spoon feed us if these people were in the right or in the wrong and exactly what their motivations were. It was very shadowy and I prefer more so these more so ambiguous uh, motivations instead of this scene where Vosin just kind of becomes the narrator and he's like, you've seen the raw intel. These kind of programs are necessary. Mm -hmm. And it, it's like, we don't need your motivation explained to us. We clearly understand what's going on. We didn't have any, any of those scenes like in the first movie per se. So eh, I, I didn't like that. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. This is, I think this is of the three, this is the one that explains to you the most. Um, what's happening in the movie because it's not just with Vosin's character, but you have the like uh, that CAA operation room where they're tracking Jason Bourne and everything um, that Vosin's oftentimes in, so is Pam, and a bunch of other desks. That's their own pretty much that those characters are only there to serve as exposition because they also they just spill everything. And so it feels like when the movie ends, there's nothing that isn't there isn't really any stone that's left unturned. They kind of explain everything to the audience. Whereas in the last two, and especially identity, as you said, there's a few things that are kind of left up in the air um, where it's not fully explained and they just kind of lets the audience figure it out for themselves. And I like that. But in this movie, an ultimatum, there isn't, isn't really everything there really is, isn't anything that isn't explained to the audience. Alan, I'm very curious. Mm -hmm. What is your rating and recommendation for The Bourne Ultimatum? 
I think the Born Automatum surprised me the most when it comes to my change in how I thought about this movie. Because like I mentioned, this was one of my favorites for a while. And coming back to it, I mean, it's since dropped off my favorites list, but coming back to it and with the SS, my SS, SSG goggles on, I didn't really know that, I didn't really think I was going to expect, I guess, all the issues that I had with it this time. Um, I don't know. I think that this is not as good as Supremacy. Um, I think, thinking back on it, I think Supremacy of this trilogy is the best so far. And I think the reason why I think that is because Supremacy thematically has a lot more meat to it than Ultimatum does. Because Ultimatum doesn't really have, Ultimatum is more of just finishing off Jason Bourne's character. And in terms of thematic material, there's not nearly as much as we've had in previous movies. Um, if you're here for action, this movie has plenty of action to go around, plenty of really well-filmed and exhilarating action. But I think my question, as I posed earlier, when does it push it a little bit too far? And I think that this movie does end up doing that at the end of the day. It explains too much to the audience. Their action scenes are a little bit too long um, here and there. Uh, the character of Noah Volson is kind of a one-note villain um, with an interesting power dynamic, but not really much in terms of depth to his character or even emotional attachment to Jason Bourne. So it's it feels more Hollywood than the last, I guess, since uh, at least in Supremacy. So I'm still going to give it a recommend. I'm going to land on a seven, which is interesting because I mean, they think they've all been sevens. But yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's as good as Supremacy. The Bourne Ultimatum is a satisfying conclusion to a powerhouse trilogy. New characters move into the film in an organic manner, and returning characters mostly provide satisfying arcs. This third entry peels back the layers of the onion that is Jason Bourne in a compelling way. Finally, going back to the crux of how Jason came to be is a necessary reveal for the third film. Not only that, but that tiny hint of Blackbriar from the first film, coming back in such an important way, graciously sheds Treadstone from the premise in order for us to realize there's something much darker at play. From the first act, I feel like stepping into familiar, comfortable shoes. Greengrass and Damon make the transition between films so seamless, this will be considered one of the tightest duologies, not just based on storytelling, but also on filmmaking. Although I still stand by the visual look, from identity to the final two films is radically different, it really doesn't coalesce well into the trilogy. Ultimatum is a riveting finale, but there are some considerable issues to deal with, such as the strange choice to remake and reinform certain parts of the first and second film, an unnecessarily elongated middle act that throws off the pacing, and the all-too-clear-cut motivations of the government villains, which is something the first film did so well making ambiguous. And of course, my biggest issue is how loosely written the script is. Unfortunately, Tony Gilroy was given the short shrift with his screenplay, hence we have an at times confusing and compromised vision, especially when held up to scrutiny. I am disappointed Greengrass really sweeps us along so quickly, he doesn't want us to take time examining the ins and outs of the plot. Nevertheless, once Jason Bourne remembers everything and falls 10 stories into the Hudson River, I'm transported to that first time in the theater causing me to realize what a landmark moment this was in cinema history. While this third entry failed to overthrow supremacy, 
and is in fact the weakest installment. The Born Ultimatum receives 6 stars out of 10, with a mild recommend. Oh, interesting. So you think it's the weakest of the three? Yeah, I uh, I want us to rank the movies here in a minute, but okay. that is something I did forget to um, actually mention I wanted to bring up. I'm going to talk about it more in uh, the guide to the Born Ultimatum. So listeners, if you want more background on that, it's it's in that podcast. But Tony Gilroy really didn't uh, work on the script for this movie, unlike right. the past two right. ones. So Gilroy wrote a draft of this script and they're like, okay, we'll take this as kind of our jumping off point. But then that's why we have two other writers that really came in. Um, Gilroy did feel like he was given the short shrift with supremacy. They feel like they, he wasn't, um, his ideas weren't incorporated as well into that movie. Mm -hmm. And so they really kind of gave him the short shrift with this one. And he's like, fine, I'm going to go do my own thing. So he and George Clooney got together. He wrote and directed Michael Clayton. That's which, right. Yeah. Which Michael Clayton got him an uh, two Oscar nominations for directing and writing. <laughs> Notice uh, yeah. Greengrass didn't get a nominee for directing and these two writers didn't get nominated for writing this movie. Mm -hmm. So Gilroy did make the right choice. And Michael Clayton came out the same year as right. this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't even remember anything about Michael Clayton. Turns out I own the movie. <laughs> don't, yeah. I don't yeah. remember a thing about it. Um, but yeah, nevertheless, there was quite a bit of drama behind the scenes with the script. Hence why this script is pretty messy. Um, the other thing I found shocking is I have this movie logged in Letterbox from August 16th, 2016. A at the time, I gave it a 9 out of 10. Oh, wow. I think I gave it something similar on IMDb. It was one of my earlier ratings, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I think I had it originally at a 9. And then it dropped to an 8 at some point. Um, and it had been an 8 for a while. So I just changed it to a seven, just the other day. <laughs> yeah, I also noticed um, on IMDb when it came to log it, I had the rating at an eight. Mm -hmm. So, and here's a little insight. Um, when I was done at the very end of this movie, I did rate it immediately. I did give it a seven, but the more I went, I went back and rewatched it, and especially having to deep dive doing the research for it, mm -hmm. the more I realized there's just too much sloppiness in this movie to uh, give it a seven. So I personally gave it a six. And so my rating scale, here's my ratings. It just goes straight down the board. Um, Born Supremacy is my number one at an eight out of 10. Born Identity is number two with seven out of 10. And Born Ultimatum, as you know, is actually surprisingly in dead last with a six out of 10. Yeah, mine, number one, still Supremacy. Um, I guess we're both on that. My number two is ultimatum and my number oh, wow. three is identity. However, I think that, uh, those last two are pretty close. Uh, in reality, they're all really close because they're all sevens. <laughs> um, yeah, they're but, all sevens. yeah, but I think when he, with a fine tooth comb, I think supremacy is the best in my opinion, because mm -hmm. there's, a th I feel there's a lot of thematic material to it when it comes to Jason Bourne's character. Um, and very, very interesting and intriguing um, character struggle with that, with his character. We don't really get that with Ultimatum and Identity has a lot of that early 2000s cheese, um, which I'm not I'm too big of a fan of. So, yeah, I, I think surprisingly, I thought it was going to be my number one, the trilogy, but uh, it's not. 
I know that was something we talked about last week is how you remembered this one being your favorite. Mm -hmm. And across the board, this is um, critically acclaimed as the best one. Um, Audiences and critics still today hold this as the best Bourne movie there is. And so I didn't really remember much about this movie, knowing what to come into it. But yeah, I was pretty shocked as well um, with this movie. Now, it's interesting because I've across the trilogy, I've given out an eight, a seven and a six. Alan has given out straight sevens. Straight sevens. But when, yeah. When you average uh, average those numbers together, we both have an average score for the trilogy as a seven out of ten. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So would it be safe to say I'm I've struggled with this as well. Do I call this a great trilogy or do I just call this a very good trilogy? I don't know, Alan. What do you think? I would say it's a good trilogy, not a great trilogy, because I think in general, the movies are pretty good uh, when you look at them all three of them in a row. I wouldn't say that they're all necessarily great, however. And I'm going to agree with you as well. This is a good trilogy. It's a, these are fun movies to watch. They're Mm -hmm. fun to just, you know, watch them three nights in a row or whatever, watch them within the same week. There's a lot of fun here, but if you try and look too hard at some things, then it's just not going to hold up to the scrutiny. And especially finally watching The Bourne Ultimatum and then The Bourne Identity so close together, those movies, the visual style is so drastically different. Oh, that yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that's kind of my trouble is The Bourne Identity and Supremacy and Ultimatum feel so closely connected with how they look and mm-hmm. feel and everything. Uh, but then uh, Identity, that's just this weird disconnect there, I would say. Yeah. And I'm surprised, too, because... As I mentioned in the Supremacy podcast, I was that was the one I remembered the least about. I've seen one in three the most of the trilogy. Um, I've only seen two a couple of times. And so I'm kind of surprised to see that my favorite uh, of the of the three is actually the one that I've seen the least, which is Supremacy. And it yeah, you know, this reconfirms my suspicions because I I always bounced around with one and two being my favorite. And then, like mm-hmm. I said, in the past couple of years, I kind of thought maybe three is the best, but I've always, I always have come back to the born supremacy as being my favorite. And I'm going to say probably forever. It will just always be my favorite film. And I think for, for, uh, being the middle film, it's very well, like self-contained yep. between the character arcs and wrap ups. So I'm very pleased with that. Mm-hmm. Now, Oh, I also wanted to mention um, the Blu-ray for this is very good. You should pick it up. Alan and I, we've already mentioned we both have the trilogy on Blu-ray. Yep. I think I even had a steelbook of this at one point. Oh, wow. I, I did. I did. I had a steelbook of it and then I sold it because the steelbook wasn't, didn't, I didn't like the steelbook. It was oh. It was one of those like comic book style uh, ones and I thought it didn't look very good for this movie. Yeah. So I sold it. I, I have one of those for Scarface. I think it looks pretty good, but otherwise I'm not a fan of those as well. So, Alan, after watching Ultimatum, do you have any movie or TV recommendations viewers watch? I do have a couple. Um, I was, I remember Salt the other day, oh. and I was like, oh, yeah, I guess that kind of feels a little bit like the Bourne trilogy. Yeah. So, uh, 
Salt, I would think, I would say is a pretty good companion piece to this in a few ways. And then also, just for the, also um, the trilogy in general, there's this movie out called The Assistant. I think the time of this recording, you can rent it for a dollar off of Amazon Prime. It's not an action movie. It's very much a drama, but these, the both of them do deal with that theme of uh, revealing the truth um, in some different ways. So I would suggest the assistant if you have if you have uh, if you're one, if you're curious to see something that's kind of similar thematically to these movies. So those are my two recommendations. I recommend you see what Gilroy did also that year. Michael Clayton. I've watched it once myself many years ago. I'm mm-hmm. curious to return to that movie, especially knowing that Gilroy wrote and directed it. And I like I like what Gilroy's done with these movies. So check out Michael Clayton. Mm-hmm. Well, this is not the end for Born. Nope. I think a lot of people thought it was the end because we weren't going to. I know nobody wanted it to be the end. Nobody wanted. Oh yeah, yeah. Nobody wanted Ultimatum to be the end, uh, especially with those especially- box office. Oh, yeah. And especially Universal <laughs> giving getting as much money from Ultimatum as they did. That's right. You don't kill the cash cow and they didn't kill the cash cow. The Bourne franchise did come back, but not, I think, how people were expecting. Yeah. 2012, which was a few years longer than I think anyone was anticipating. Yeah. With Jeremy Renner. Yeah. So it took five years. Now, mm-hmm. the Bourne legacy is the logical next step for the Bourne series because original author Robert Ludlum wrote the original trilogy and then um, he passed away. And so they handed the reins off to a new author who wrote mm-hmm. the Bourne legacy. So it makes sense that this would be the next step. Um, right. Matt Damon and Paul Greengrass don't come back. For the born legacy and i think that was right. very shocking to a lot of audiences right but tony gilroy comes back right tony gilroy comes back to write direct his brother comes back um i think well, no not comes back his brother and i don't know i gotta do the research because he's got like two family members like uh mm-hmm. one of his family members edits the movie another one like helps him write the movie so interesting the, the gilroy's uh, after being given the short shrift with this, they come back to take over this film. That's interesting. So I'm kind of curious to see because I've seen it. I've seen the Borg of Legacy once, maybe twice. Um, I'm interested to, to come back to it now that the Gilroy family has taken over. <laughs> yeah, see what that me too. I'm really curious as well. I definitely remember seeing the Born Legacy in theaters. It's not one I return to often, but this is not the last time. Damon and Greengrass would reteam. They actually got back together three years later for the movie The Green Zone. Okay, yeah, I, I, I know about that one. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it, but Damon and Greengrass came back for that. And then, of course, nine years later, they would come back for Jason Bourne. That's right. Nine yep. years. That one I did get to see, I guess, technically not in the theater. I got to see it at the drive-in. Oh. But I have seen that one. I did find it fascinating. Uh, Matt Damon and Tony Gilroy would reunite. Nine years later, also, um, not for Jason Bourne. Gilroy does not come back for Jason Bourne. He does come back for The Great Wall. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I think uh, the Oscars made fun of him for that. Um, Whoever the host was made fun of Matt Damon for it. Yeah, I was shocked to see that um, in 2016, 
Damon worked with Gilroy and Greengrass, but on separate projects. Mm -hmm. Well, the question after the show, listeners, is which is your favorite Bourne film? Critics say this one is the best. I say it's the least best. And Alan says it's right there in the middle. So I want to know what your ranking of the trilogy is, listeners. Alan and I are both very curious to know how you would rank it, because clearly I'm not in the majority here with how I rank these movies. Clearly, I'm all wrong. According to IMDb, <laughs> according to IMDb, you got it backwards. Yeah, it's according to IMDb, it's born ultimatum, born identity and born supremacy. Mm -hmm. Flip that for me. It, I literally have it backwards. So I'm curious, listeners, what you think. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. Well, we are not coming back next week for the Born Legacy. Actually, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from Born because we are coming back to Christopher Nolan. We are going to watch his remaining films leading up to the hopefully theatrical release of Tenant. I'm pretty sure at this point it's a done deal, I think. Uh, except that it was just changed to June 30th. Like what? Just yesterday. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Wait, June or July? I, I think it's June 30th. Let me look it up real quick. Because it was scheduled for July. Date. Oh, so I'm sorry. Uh, let me. Yeah, here it is. Variety. Da -ba -da -ba -da. July 31st. Darn it. We were hoping it wouldn't change. Well, I mean, it's too late now. There's no reason to change the schedule. We'll just continue with uh, with, <laughs> with Christopher Nolan. Oh, gosh. What a what a year. What a year. Yeah. We, we originally had uh, the schedule very different. Maybe we'll talk about that on a podcast, but mm. stupid virus messed everything up messed everything up but nevertheless i'm very curious to come back to the dark knight rises especially after giving nolan some breathing room yeah i am too i'm curious to see how dark knight rises stands in my mind because i've only seen it a couple of times all right listeners we will see you next week with the dark knight rises Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual, and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide.
Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. Oh, Nelly. Uh-oh, what's wrong? Nothing. Oh, okay. Just felt like saying it. <laughs> <laughs> it okay. For a second. <laughs> like, Everything crashed. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, when, w- would not be expected. Yeah. Would not be a yeah. surprise. But it currently holds a... Str- 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 ugh. Oh, I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> you are frozen. Reconnecting. I'm going to get the Ethernet just... Simultaneously, the head of Blackbriar, Noah Vosen, played by David Strathairn. Yeah, Noah. His last name is so hard to pronounce. Yeah, yeah, it is. I was looking at it. I was like, oh, oh, how do you say that? (laughs) Strathairn. Simultaneously, the head of Blackbriar. I was about to say played by Noah Vosen. (laughs) (laughs) I believe in you, Corbin. Caffeine, don't fail me now. Not, not what I needed.